Hello everyone and welcome to Changing Conversations with me, Billy Burke. And me, Sarah Philp. We're really glad you've joined us on this podcast. This podcast is all about changing conversation. Conversation is one of the oldest ways to nurture the conditions for growth and improvement. We come alive when we talk about what's important to us and it's this that has the potential to guide us into new and different ways of being and offer the potential for great things. In this podcast, we want to explore the big questions and the small questions. It's a place for thinking and conversations that hold the potential for change. You will hear from us as well as some of our guests. We would love to hear from you and for you to get involved. You can also follow us on Twitter at Changing Conversations. Welcome to um, episode 13 of Changing Conversations and today we are joined by Jenny Donahue, who joins us from Ontario in Canada. So Jenny, welcome and how are you? I'm fine, thank you. Thanks for having me with you today. Oh, you're very welcome. We're delighted you were able to um, join us. And I know who you are and I know very well what you, what you do and what you're all about, but for the listeners, um, who are not familiar with your work, can you just give us a bit of an idea of who you are and what you do? Sure. I'm a former classroom teacher, and I'm also an author and researcher. Mm -hmm. I'm currently on contract with the Council of Ontario Directors of Education, doing some research uh, in the province of Ontario, trying to figure out what we're learning about supporting English language learners. Mm -hmm. And I also work with schools and districts uh, throughout North America and some international work, really looking to improve the quality of professional learning yeah. uh, for the ultimate purpose, of course, of improving student outcomes. Yeah. And I, I remember when you were over in Edinburgh a few years ago for the Visible Learning World Conference, um, you shared some of your work across a, a number of workshops. And I, I know from uh, colleagues from the UK and beyond who attended those workshops, they were really inspired and really engaged by your work. So we are sure that our listeners will, will find the same tonight as well today. Um, so I first came across your work when I let, read uh, Collaborative Inquiry, which um, when I was thinking about it earlier, I realized is actually six or seven years ago now. And I know that your work is fueled and driven by the power of the collective. But I wanted to just maybe unpick a little bit more about what's the what's the why or the purpose behind your work? What really drives you on those tougher days? Mm, that's a great question. You know, I think just based on my experience, first teaching in a classroom, being the recipient of professional learning, and then shifting roles later on in my career, um, working at the district level, really supporting new teacher induction and, and adolescent literacy amongst other things in my portfolio at the time. But uh, all of a sudden now, I'm charged with providing professional development to teachers. And in my experience, being the recipient, it was always felt like it was done to me um, and that I wasn't really a part of the process, that somebody else determined what it is I needed to know um, based on you know maybe a shiny object in a sandbox. <laughs> Who knows? But... Um, you know, so I started to think about ways of increasing the quality of professional learning, and I stumbled across um, action research when I was working on my master's degree and found that it was a valuable process for me to engage in professionally. 
And at the district level, then I started to think that if we invited teams of teachers to engage in a process that was similar, but do it in a way that they're collaborating on a common issue that they all share uh, related to a student learning need, that that would be a, a valuable design. Mm -hmm. And it's continued to grow. Um, we invited a small group of people first, maybe teams of five to eight from different schools to identify a problem of practice and you know, work together in joint problem solving to um, make a change. And what we saw was that it not only empowered teachers, but it resulted in a change in practice in their classrooms, which um, also increased teacher agency, uh, leadership. Uh, people were owning professional learning and seeing a difference that it was making for their students. And it just continued to grow because it was a, a good design and through word of mouth, you know, people would say to their colleagues, oh, why don't you join this team next year? And um, I found that it was a real tipping point um, in many ways. And it reminds me too, my, one of my favorite quotes comes from Michael Fullen, who I know was a guest of yours uh, yeah. recently on the <laughs> show, but um, in professional capital, Michael Fullen and Andy Hargraves have the, it, it's, I'm maybe paraphrasing, but it's something like, successful and sustainable school improvement cannot be done to or even for teachers. It can only be achieved by and with teachers. Mm -hmm. And that's always resonated with me. Um, and just noting the power of collaboration um, through my work over the years has, has been my driving force. Mm. And what do you think has been your biggest learning um, for yourself on this journey that you've had? through designing learning and creating learning? Yeah, that's a good question too. For me, it's just never assuming too much, you know, and, and making sure that teachers have a voice mm -hmm. is, is really important to me, that teachers have the voice in identifying what it, their professional learning needs are. And sometimes that, that takes facilitation and work to, yeah. to try to help them tease that out. But that um, once they have a voice in what it is that they're learning, why it is they're learning it, I just found that, you know, again, it results in uh, change, not only in practice, but in beliefs. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Um, what, what's the, the most exciting or the most powerful piece of action research you did as, as a teacher or you've seen done? I've seen a lot and a lot of examples, you know, mostly from my work in Ontario districts come to mind. Um, we have a large indigenous population and the Ministry of Education for many years funded collaborative inquiry for teams on a voluntary basis. That's another critical aspect for me that it's, mm -hmm. you know, voluntary. Um, and so we have seen great gains um, with our indigenous population through uh, collaborative inquiry. Um, also the Ministry of Education here in Ontario has sponsored a lot of projects, um, provided a lot of um, funds for teachers to engage in collaborative inquiry with the um, improvement of students and closing the achievement gaps for our English language learners. So when it's very much targeted and when you have people um, engaged in the work that really want to make a difference, um, mm -hmm. then I think that that's been, been a good experience to be part of those projects. Mm -hmm. I think one of the one of the things I've noticed over the years sometimes the hardest part for for teachers is to work out like to focus and to narrow because there's so many things that they could do action inquiry around it can almost be overwhelming and actually trying to get to 
a question or an area that you can focus on can be can be the trickiest part. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's for sure. So I, I think that there's a need to have a skilled facilitator to help people engage in that work. And it doesn't, and it probably shouldn't. Uh, so I'm going to be careful with how I phrase that. I don't know if that's too strong of language, but um, I think that when it's too much directed from the outside and from district office, then it squashes the opportunities for teachers to take on that leadership role. So I, I believe that even though it's difficult to facilitate the learning of your colleagues, that that's an important opportunity to provide for teachers. It's a challenge, Jenny, for school leaders to change the style of um, what maybe traditionally would be providing training opportunities to actually facilitating learning from the other direction. It is a challenge of leadership. Is that something that you've come across that, that school leaders, principals have looked for guidance in that area? I have, and I, I think that some of my best moments have been when a school leader wants to take on that role and is looking to um, fine tune his or her skills in being a facilitator and being that coach on the side or somebody that they're looking to, to provide perhaps that um, feedback you know, to, to help them improve their skills. So I think it's important for uh, school and system leaders to um, look for that assistance if, if that is something that they aspire to, is to even rely on a peer, a friend, who can, um, you know, do, go along that pathway with them. And let me ask you now about collective teacher efficacy, because it's one of those things that gets talked about, but probably gets mixed up with, things like collaboration and other ideas. So could you give us some clarity on that, on that matter of collective teacher efficacy? Sure. I, I get worried about it getting mixed up too um, or misunderstood. And I also worry about a lot of claims that I see that basically everything under the sun is going to be a way to enhance collective teacher efficacy. And so I think it's very important for us to rely on research and what we know through research about uh, the enabling conditions or the sources of collective efficacy. Um, and of course, teamwork and collaboration are critical aspects, um, but it is, it is much more complicated than that. Um, collective teacher efficacy is a belief, it's a conviction that our combined efforts make a measurable difference in the lives of students over and above the educational influence of the things that are beyond our control, like socioeconomic status and parental involvement and those other things that we tend to sometimes allow to dominate the conversations in schools. Mm -hmm. And it is about valuing collaboration, um, interpreting success through a growth mindset, uh, seeing and understanding how our efforts, our programs, our improvement strategies result in better outcomes for students. It really ultimately boils down to recognizing our impact. And I think that it's also important when we think about collective efficacies to um, understand both the sources that tend to um, influence efficacy beliefs and to understand the positive consequences that result when efficacy is developed. Um, and that's important because what we know through the research is that um, where there's a high sense of collective efficacy in schools, 
regardless of the demographics and even if schools are similar, those where efficacy is firmly established, we know that there is higher student achievement. And so what are the sources that influence a team's interpretation of their effectiveness? And, and I think that's important to know because if we want to tap into those sources, uh, we need to know how, how people form their beliefs. Um, and one important source is that idea of kind of going back to that idea of um, recognizing success and impact um, and realizing that what we do matters in the lives of students. Um, when efficacy is not established, people tend to give up more easily because they don't feel their efforts are going to amount to much. Um, so that source of efficacy being mastery experiences where the team recognizes they set a goal um, they, you know, have maybe reached a little bit beyond what they thought they might be capable of achieving, but when they reach that goal, then they tend to build their efficacy beliefs because it's, um, masteries are, you know, the most potent source of efficacy shaping information for teams because it's based on a firsthand experience. Um, the second source is vicarious experiences. It's when teams see others that are faced with similar challenges and or opportunities meet with success and they start to think to themselves, well, if that group did it, then surely we can do it as well. Um, two other sources is um, social persuasion. And this is really in the um, realm of the leaders, the formal leaders in the systems to persuade teams that they constitute an effective group and to take those risks and reassure them of their confidence. And then the last source is what the literature refers to as affective states, and it's the feelings and emotions that are associated with taking risks. And those can fall into one of two categories. They can be positive, where we're feeling a sense of excitement and joy and um, gratitude, um, or they can be negative. And when they're negative, those are things like anxiety and fear and frustration. And the last point I just wanna make before I'll let you, you guys jump in, because I know I've, I've put a lot of ideas out there, but the research on um, pandemics shows that there tends to be a heightened um, negative affective states amongst communities and individuals. And so I guess I worry during this time of COVID-19 that efficacy can be placed at risk because I know in my experience, a lot of my educator friends and colleagues are feeling that anxiety and, and stress that's coming with um, the consequences of the pandemic. That's so timely. I had a conversation this afternoon with my extended leadership team in school about that very matter that, that each day um, we are under a pressure that we haven't been under before and we need to acknowledge that and, and therefore acknowledge that we need to be more self-aware, we need to look out for ourselves more now than ever, look out for each other. Um, so what a timely comment. Um, I also wanted to get your, your thoughts on the connection, the research around efficacy and teacher resilience, you know, where there's a correlation between efficacy and uh, job satisfaction, retention, at a time when we know globally, recruitment into teaching, that there are issues around the globe. Absolutely. And so we do have research that shows that relationship um, between teacher well-being and collective efficacy and self-efficacy. Yeah. Um, but besides that, too, there's um, a lot of research that shows a wealth of other positive consequences that come when there is a firmly established sense of efficacy amongst the staff. Not only is there greater job satisfaction and greater retention, um, but teachers also tend to 
um, hold higher expectations of students. Um, there's less um, disciplinary referrals in schools where efficacy is high. So, you know, more, more students are in, are in school and not being expelled for problem yeah. behavior. Teachers with a sense of efficacy are more likely to en encourage family involvement, parental involvement in their child's education. And for me, most importantly, where efficacy is present, teachers tend to raise students' expectations of themselves by convincing kids that they can do well in school. And that's, of course, connected to students' expectations and also student self-efficacy, which also have high effect sizes. So I think that the reason collective efficacy yields such a high effect size is because it results in a number of positive consequences. Um, in Scotland, schools have been back for a few weeks now. and um pupils are back in full time and we've obviously had that period of being physically disconnected um but it's been interesting that during that time new connections have formed new collaborations within and across schools and connecting using technology in ways that we weren't using before and now that we're back in buildings yes we are physically back in the building but there are still restrictions and there's still physical distancing in, in different ways and I suppose building on a comment you made um, just a few minutes ago, what are you learning about collective efficacy during this time of physical distancing and global pandemics? That's just a small question, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that even though we're physically distanced, we're connected more than ever before. And I think part of that is because I think COVID-19 has helped to create an environment that legitimizes help seeking. Um, and I know that people are um, probably less hesitant to reach out to their peers. It's a colleague of mine that um, I wrote the fourth book with, Stephen Katz, is mm -hmm. one of my favorite thought leaders, another Ontario uh, <laughs> educator. He's an educational psychologist out of um, the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education. Uh -huh. And he, um, what's his term, the imposter syndrome, he talks mm -hmm. about that you know, every educator might feel or, or system or school leader that somebody's going to find out that I don't belong. It's that little inner voice. Um, and I think that COVID-19 has helped uh, kind of squash those imposter syndrome ideas in, in people's minds because we're all navigating territory that was unexpected and unknown. Um, and so I think that, that because of COVID-19, in my experience, a lot of people are reaching out to collaborate with their colleagues in ways that they hadn't done before. And it sounds like you're experiencing something similar since you've been in for four weeks. Are you finding the same? Yeah, and I think there was a lot of collaboration during the lockdown period as, as well. And I think, like you say, a lot of that, that help seeking and that honesty where um, it's always been okay to not be okay, but we've never really believed it. <laughs> And I think it's only in these circumstances we are more accepting of that or at least more willing to apply it to ourselves. It, it's easy to say and share that with other people, but actually believing that, you know, yourself. Billy, from your perspective in school, what, what would you say? I would say that schools, if, if not already, an environment where we can be human first, mm -hmm. then they're, they're having to move in that direction. Uh, we, we've realised the, the real important things in life over the past six months um, and even things like I'm pretty sure that a lot most students wouldn't admit it but they have missed their teachers mm -hmm. they've, they've missed the interaction they've missed the routine the 
as we call it over here, Jenny, the banter, <laughs> you know, the fun and that you, that you just get from those human relationships. Um, and it, but it does mean that we are human. And, and at the moment, globally, we are going through uncertain times, worrying times, um, and an illness that, that has killed many, many people. Let's let's be clear on what we're talking about. Um, so I think now more than ever, if people were not already in the place to put well-being first before all else, then they must be very quickly catching up. That's certainly some feedback Sarah and I have had mm-hmm. through various people that you know that we've spoken to in the podcast and from comments that we've put out there that people just find it useful to hear that from people. Yeah. It's okay to be doing what you're doing mm-hmm. and admit a level of vulnerability. That's so That's important. That's exactly what I was thinking. I just wrote down the word vulnerability. I think it's um, given us the opportunity to be more vulnerable in front of each other and, and show that vulnerability in a way that we haven't before. Yeah. yeah. Do you think, Jenny, that the the lack of help seeking or the new found ability to, to seek help. Do you think that's unique to educators or do you think it's, it's more generic than that? I probably would think it's, uh, you know, across different domains mm-hmm. in the society for sure. Yeah. I think, I've, you know, I've had conversations with quite a few school leaders and, 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 and teachers who acknowledge that they find it really difficult to ask for help, but also really just assume that it must only be them mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and that they are different in some way. And so, yeah, asking for help or saying that they're unsure or stuck um, kind of puts a spotlight on them as different to everyone else, which is interesting. Yeah, and I'm thinking too, um, a couple important points about collective efficacy or, or individual efficacy is that it's a future-oriented belief and it's situational specific. And so while teachers may have felt a high sense of efficacy in their ability to engage students in a face-to-face environment, um, they might feel differently given the context of remote learning or online learning or even if they're coming back to a face-to-face environment, things have changed, right? They're, they're stepping outside their comfort zone and trying to figure out ways to do things differently. Um, I was talking with a primary teacher the other day and she's struggling with how to get small group instruction when the kids have to be physically distant. So, I mean, we're all going through a lot of changes. So because efficacy is situational specific, um, I worry that people's efficacy might be diminished again in this time. But when I say that, sometimes I love the pushback I'll get from, from different audiences because everybody has an example of where they feel that efficacy has um, led them to be more resilient, uh, you know, have that adaptive capacity to, to deal with the stress and the change. So um, we know that when efficacy is established, it's pretty hard to break down as well. Yeah. So it's good to know that um, there's a lot of positive going on. There's a lot of success happening and and that people are reaching out to to get help, but also to give help. Well, let's let's put that invitation and challenge out there. Let let's share over Twitter when this episode goes out some examples for you, Jenny, from Scotland and other places that our listeners are from about examples of efficacy is helping at the moment. That I suppose that that we'll definitely put that invite out, and I suppose that lets us just um, close off this section of the conversation by asking you to 
to share. For leaders and teachers listening, any advice or insight that you would give at this time to help them further nurture collective efficacy in their own school communities? Absolutely. So um, besides the sources that I had mentioned earlier, the mastery experiences, vicarious experiences, social persuasion, and, and keeping a focus on the positive affective states, those are important things to consider. Um, we've also identified through research, what are some of the enabling conditions? Because when I talked about those sources, as I mentioned, efficacy beliefs are future oriented and they're based on the sources from past experiences. But we also know that there's certain things in the, the environment and the context in the here and now that school leaders can help to, um, I guess, enable or strengthen conditions in the, their schools or remote schools or virtual schools. Um, so five enabling conditions. One is through the lens of the supportive leader. Um, that, that condition kind of envelops all of the others that the supportive leader um, needs to really focus on setting up the normative conditions or expectations for teachers to collaborate and help them focus that collaboration on instructional improvement and knowing their impact. Um, other conditions that are important, we know that there is a clear and strong relationship between teacher leadership and collective efficacy. Some studies assume that collective efficacy is the precursor resulting in teacher leadership and other studies assume that the direction is the opposite. Um, but we do know that there's, we need to empower teachers to take on leadership roles so that that could be an enabling condition of efficacy as well. Um, goal consensus is another enabling condition where teachers um, have a say in the goals that are being set um, and have both perhaps um, more proximate and distance goals. So the proximate goals serve to show them the incremental steps that they're uh, making to, to meet with success. But that consensus on the goals that people are, are trying to accomplish in schools is important. Uh, cohesive teacher knowledge is another enabling condition. And that really boils down to what degree do our faculty, um, to what degree do they agree on what constitutes effective pedagogy? Do they have the same ideas about around what uh, sound instruction and assessment practices? And I think that we can build cohesive teacher knowledge by helping, helping to open classroom doors, whether that's virtually, um, you know, virtual opportunities for observations or face-to-face. -face. And then finally, the notion of um, ensuring that teachers are embedding reflective practices into their regular routines is an important aspect as well. Now, those are all really big leadership moves. <laughs> and I think for each one of them, you know, maybe leaders could focus on one um, as a group, you know, that they, where they feel that they could have the most impact and then work together to figure out how do they enact that in their leadership practice? Because there's a lot more to learn to, to go deeper with each one of those big ideas. Yeah, absolutely. Really resonates with the situation in Scotland just now where one of the key priorities in the system is empowerment particularly teacher agency and shifting schools and the, shifting the whole system from anything that would resemble top down to more that decision making and particularly around learning takes place closest to the young person as possible. So that will really resonate with people. Thank you for that, Jay. Absolutely. And I think what you just said is what it boils down to. Getting a common understanding of what we mean by empowering teachers and it boils down to giving them authentic decision-making power 
over yeah, yeah. what matters most in improving learning. So thank you for that, that decision piece that you added there. Thank you very much. And it would be only fair of us to um, share with our listeners that you are also doing an Education Scotland leather um, in a few weeks time. So we'll, we'll pop the, the details of that in the episode notes so listeners can get a chance to engage with you more directly as well. But for now, we thank you hugely for joining us, um, for having the conversation, but also for bringing a real sense of clarity and meaning to the research around collective efficacy and collaboration, which can sometimes get confusing, but you have such clarity and a great way of sharing that with us. So thank you very much. So Jenny, before we let you go, we have um, three questions, three questions that we share with all of our podcast guests. And the first question for you is, what did you want to be when you were growing up? Well, I think I may have gone into forensics, forensic medicine, perhaps. That's always been an area of interest of mine, but I had very low ex the teachers had very low expectations of me when I was in school mm. and I was it was recommended by my guidance counselor that I go into hairdressing and I wasn't really in any of the science classes and I think had I had better teachers I might have gone a different path now I'm not saying I'm unsatisfied with where I am I absolutely love where I am and, and what I do but that was a question that made me think back to my high school days <laughs> Well, certainly we're, we're delighted that you that you didn't choose hairdressing given the contribution that that you make to the education system jenny the second question is to ask you what you're reading at the moment whether work related or pleasure so i love to read and my latest is stories that stick and the author is kindra hall and the subtitle is how storytelling can captivate customers influence audiences and transform your business. Now, it's mostly um, written from a business perspective, but any teacher would benefit, I think, from reading this book, Stories That Stick, because we, now, we know that there's a lot of power in storytelling to captivate an audience. Absolutely. We, we spoke with a, a head teacher from New Zealand who, and the, the theme around how she, the pedagogy in her school is framed a lot around storytelling. It, there's, there's just something about human nature and stories, isn't there? Absolutely. And I know when I'm speaking in front of a crowd, um, you know, when you're face to face anyway, it's a little different to mm -hmm. read online, but I know that you could hear a pin drop when I go to my storytelling. And, and when I was a classroom teacher, it was the same thing, right? Yeah. The kids would, you'd have them, a captivated audience. So I know, yeah. I think this, is, this has been a great book for me. I'm gonna probably read it a second time. Yeah, like you say, stories are so powerful. And, and also we, we chatted with Madeline Black and she was talking about story healing and the power of stories in, in healing as well. So yeah, stories have such power and such a contribution. And so our final question is, do you have a quote or a message that you would like to leave our listeners with? I do. Um, this comes from our Collective Efficacy Center, and it's our vision. And our vision is to shape mastery environments, 
in which everyone in an educational setting shares the belief that individually and collectively, they have the capability to impact positive change. And I, that's what I hope and aspire to, that, that every educator in the system believes that what they do really matters and makes a difference for students. Mm. And what educators do really does matter and really does make a difference. So a perfect way to end the conversation. So thank you again, Jenny, for joining us and thank you for, for sharing with clarity and with purpose. Thank you. Thank you, Jenny. Well, thank you so much for listening to this episode and please join us again for the next one. In the meantime, you can get involved with the conversation via Twitter or by seeing the episode notes for our contact details. Thank you again from both of us. Stay safe and take good care.